The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. They've all filed these motions to try to, uh, they've framed them in various ways, but the basic gist of these motions is they're asking the state court judge to stay the proceedings in state court. Uh, Mark Meadows is, has also filed a motion to sever his case on grounds that, you know, if the case is removed, it might bring all of the defendants into federal court. So he tells the judge, you might as well sever me now, because then that way, if I if my case gets removed, it's just me. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 9th, 2023. It's another episode of our weekly live stream series, Trump's Trials and Tribulations, which take place live on YouTube each week, Thursday afternoons at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. This week, I was joined in the Virtual Jungle Studio by Lawfare Senior Editor Roger Parloff and Lawfare's legal fellow Anna Bauer, to talk about the latest events in Proud Boys sentencing and in Georgia. We talked about the hefty sentences that Enrique Tarrio and other Proud Boys received this week in Federal District Court in Washington. We talked about how these sentences compare to Oath Keepers and to other January 6th perpetrators. And we talked about the machinations in Georgia, removal immunity, severance, and all the other stuff that is going on with poor Judge McAfee trying to deal with a 19-defendant trial. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 9th, Proud Boys Sentencing and Georgia Wrangling. Roger, get us started. Uh, We had a string of sentencings in Proud Boys cases, you were not at the sentencing, but you were uh, did sit through the whole trial. Tell us about the sentencings and how they compared to what you expected. They were heavy sentences. I expected heavy sentences. They were a, a bit heavier than I expected. We had a 22-year sentence for Enrique Tario, the top the leader of the Proud Boys. That's pretty remarkable. It's, you know, that the the maximum for seditious conspiracy is 20 years. So to get a 22-year sentence, you need to run sentences concurrently. Um, that's four years more than Stuart Rhodes got for the founder of the, Oakla- uh, of the Oath Keepers. And uh, then uh, the second defendant, Ethan Nordine, got 18 years, the same as Stuart Rhodes. Joe Biggs got 17. 
Um, Zach Reel got 15. And Dominic Pizzola, the fellow that broke the two panes of glass, as you've seen, the first panes of glass that allowed the first rioters to get into the building, he got 10 years. So these uh, these sentences, the, these five people, well, at this point, there have been about 1,150 cases brought, and um, four of the five top sentences are Proud Boys, uh, five of the top 10. Um, seven of the top 10 are Proud Boys or Oath Keepers. That said, they were years below what the government asked and years below their sentencing guidelines. So it's conceivable that the government government might appeal these, even as it appealed the Oath Keeper sentences. But I honestly, I think that would be silly. Uh, these are very heavy-duty sentences. I will bet you lunch at a restaurant of the winner's choice that the government appeals this because the higher you push the ceiling the from the prosecutor's point of view and Enrique Tarrio is the ceiling, right? He's leadership cadre and he's violent, uh, or at least he supervised violence, whereas Stuart Rhodes is leadership cadre. But as you've repeatedly pointed out, the Oath Keepers were kind of more talk than anything else. The Proud Boys are the real deal. So the higher you can push Enrique Tarrio's sentence, the higher all the other sentences level up. Am I wrong? Uh, that's right, except that we really, at this point, I think we've hit the top as far as we're you know, uh, expecting any of, uh, as far as the blue collar defendants, uh, and there's nothing coming down the pike that's going to compare to this. So, but it does raise interesting questions about if Trump ever does go to trial in one of these January 6th cases and is convicted, you know, the the federal sentencing analysis would be different but as we've seen, the judges don't necessarily give a lot of weight to the sentencing guidelines. And it's hard to see how he wouldn't get more than these guys since they were all there for him. Yeah, although he is charged under wildly different laws right, than they right. are. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in the relative disparity between these guys and the Oath Keepers. When, we, when the Oath Keeper sentences happened, your instinct was that they were pretty reasonable and that, uh, I believe it was Judge Mehta, right? Yes. Was making pretty reasonable distinctions um, between them uh, and that his departures from the sentencing guidelines and from the governor government's requests were pretty sensible and reasonable in your view. You know, this is a different judge, Judge Lynch. Um, no, uh, it's Judge Tim Kelly. Tim Kelly, sorry. Um, and, and maybe it's worth mentioning that he's a Trump appointee. A Trump we appointee. We usually try not to mention that, but here it sort of, anyway. Worth mentioning, he's a Trump mm -hmm. appointee, and he is also somebody who's management of the case, as I recall, you were not especially admiring of. Well, I admired that he, he really tried 
to be fair, he really tried to get things right, but he deliberated a long time on a lot of issues and he let the lawyers go on and on and on. That that I would quibble with. But as far as the crucial things, you know, you want from a judge trying to get it right, trying to be fair, uh, I thought he was good. So looking at the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers sentences together, you have a general pattern of sentences coming in well below the guidelines, well below the government's request, and yet nonetheless pretty stiff and serious relative to uh, certainly anybody else who's been charged and convicted. When you look at the these Proud Boy sentences next to the Oath Keeper sentences, does it look something like justice to you, or does are there standout cases who should have gotten more or less? Yeah, no, it makes sense to me. And um, the Proud Boys case, uh, sentences are heavier than all of the Oath Keepers, with the exception of Rhodes, and that's as it should be. The sense was that Rhodes was much more culpable than the others who were basically all just followers of him, sort of enamored of this charismatic guy, at least for a while, and mesmerized and and bamboozled to some extent. And in fact, some of the lower level people, some of the people in the stack, not the seditious conspiracy people, some of them, well, one got acquitted and uh, some got probation. You know, you had some like 70-year-old people who, a couple that came in from Ohio and, you know, it just wasn't that serious. And what they did wasn't all that serious. But with the Proud Boys, these five at least, they were crucial and the sentences show it. So it, 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 it makes sense to me. Make no mistake, we did this. <laughs> yeah, That's what I always, you know, say in in Lawfare's internal Slack channel when we raid a building. So um, you mentioned the 1,100 some odd now indicted cases. Oh, and we have uh, some breaking news. Peter Navarro has been found guilty of two counts of criminal contempt of Congress for defying the January 6th select committee. No surprise there, given that the judge uh, rightly uh, left him with very few defenses to posit, and there was no doubt that he defied the subpoena. So looking at the broad pattern of the blue-collar cases. I I think that all of our grade school teachers would have said, no, he left himself no defenses. (laughs) Good. The judge clarified that he had (laughs) left himself no defenses. What can we say about the pattern here? We've got, it's a pretty large end set at this point. What can we observe about it? How done is it? How many more cases are we expecting? And, what are your observations about the two and a half years of work at the blue collar end of the January 6th prosecution space? Well, it's been extraordinarily successful and pretty comprehensive and it's going on. I mean, there are new arrests still. I, I don't know how many they plan to continue to do that, but we, we did get a new, 
arrest for one of the uh, people that attacked uh, uh, Officer Fanon and uh, this week. So, um, you know, they're really trying to track everyone down still, but I, I, I assume it's, it's slowing down. I see some of the numbers falling as far as the number of people on the all points bulletin or, or whatever, whatever it is, there used to be 350 people they were still looking for. I think it's come down a little. We've discussed at great length over the years, and it is now years, um, the fact that there was this missing layer, right? There was a, a kind of pretty and increasingly comprehensive set of prosecutions of people who were on the ground January 6th, and there was kind of nothing at the political level. Now we have state prosecution at the political level. We'll get to that in a moment. We have federal January 6th prosecution. We have Mar-a-Lago, though that's not quite related. How does the larger picture look to you? You know, it's an enormous load off my mind, you know, until some of these other people had to at least answer charges, it it all felt like a a farce. You can't go after 1,100 people who were following this guy and who were tricked by all of these other people. And, And the judges felt it. And the jurors felt it, and and we felt it. And, and many of the judges have made references over the years. You know, I think at least nine have referenced that. You know, these are pawns that we're looking at. They they committed crimes, but when all is said and done, this wasn't their idea. And it is a great relief that at least these higher-ups are going to have to respond to what they did. They're going to have to answer. I don't know how it will come out, if they'll be exonerated, uh, fine, but uh, they will have to come forward and answer. And do you think that, like right now at the federal level, it's a weird mix, right? You've got the comprehensive lower level on the ground January 6th, you've got Trump and nobody in between, right? Because the whole senior management and middle management layer, all of whom are indicted in Georgia, or most of whom are indicted in Georgia, are all unindicted co-conspirators at the federal level. Does that bother you as a missing layer, or is that fine if they answer for it in Georgia, but are unindicted co-conspirators at the federal level? Like, or does it need to fill in that there needs to be like the, the, you can't have the top of the pyramid and the base of the pyramid, but this missing pyramidal Jeff Clark, John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell layer in the middle? Well, I don't know how it's going to play out at the moment, I'm, I'm content because this format of one defendant and you go at him and is obviously so much more efficient 
and workable than 19. I wonder why you used the term, the number 19, where that, where that <laughs> just pulled that out of the air, Rod. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and yes, to some extent, the fact that these people, Chesbro, you know, Jenna Ellis, you know, all of these people are caught up in Georgia. They're, they're, somebody is taking them seriously. That does to me seem adequate given the, the, it's, it's urgent that, that, you know, time is of the essence. Let's, let's have a streamlined case that goes at, at the guy at the top. So I'm okay with that. I don't know if, I don't know that that's really Jack Smith's plan or whether, you know, tomorrow he'll, he'll indict 18 others. But um, it's a very, I, I just don't, it's so un, unwieldy. You know, I remember, I, I'm old enough to remember the pizza connection case, which I think started out with 22 and two pled guilty and one got murdered. So I think it ended with 19. Uh, it took 16 months to try. And I think the Second Circuit said later on in a different case, no mas, you know, we're not going to do that again. Uh, if it's going to take more than four months, you break it up. And uh, we saw the, 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 I mean, the Oath Keepers uh, was actually a nine-person indictment, or, or more than that, some pled guilty, but they tried it five and then four, and then there were some other people left over the, but 19, that's, uh, I, I'm not familiar with Georgia practice, but that just seems unwieldy to me. All right. So let's talk about, that's a great transition to the unwieldy state of Georgia where uh, Anna is joining us from uh, with a much more traditional background than, than last time. So Anna, we have 19 co-defendants. Two of them want early trial, um, but they want it separately from each other. The others want to be separated from the two of them, don't care if they're tried together or separately, but they want to push it off as long as possible. And the government wants to try them all together, all 19 and is fine to do it, it says, in October, so that uh, Mr. Chesbrough and Ms. Powell can be tried in compliance with their Speedy Trial Act requests. So this sounds like a LSAT logic game. <laughs> is there any way to um, design a trial plan so that everybody gets what they want? <laughs> well, no, especially because some of the some of them want to not be tried with anyone, and and you're right, it is like an LSAT logic game. Um, there was a hearing. Chesbro will be right. tried with so and so, but refuses to be tried with so and so. Trump wants it trial put off until the uh, uh, sun supernovas, but you know Powell wants to be tried yesterday. Right. No, exactly. And and there was a hearing yesterday on this very subject uh, where the judge tried to 
make an initial decision on at least the matter of of Chesbro and Powell. So Chesbro and Powell had said that they wanted to be tried on their own. They didn't want to be with each other. They also didn't want to be with any of the other co-defendants. They're the only two who have filed these speedy trial demands, which requires the prosecution to basically try them within two grand grand jury terms, which in Fulton County is about four months. So I think the deadline for Fonnie Willis with Powell and Chesbro is November third. They have to initiate the trial proceedings in order to avoid dismissal of, of the charges against Powell and Chesbro because of these speedy trial demands. So the judge had a hearing yesterday. It was Judge McAfee's first outing in the case uh, besides, you know, this initial kind of Rule 22 media hearing that we had a week ago. But he he ended up deciding he that- He looks, by the way, Judge McAfee looks like he may be about to have his bar mitzvah. <laughs> he's 34 he, years. Yeah, he's, he's 34. 34. He looks youthful. He's a very youthful, but, but he was- he seems really competent. Yeah, he seemed, I mean, based on what I've heard is that he's very competent. He seems, uh, both defense attorneys and prosecutors seem to like him. Uh, he seems fair. He seemed very comfortable and assertive. He, he wasn't, he, even though he's only been on the bench for not even a year now. He, he just seemed very uh, competent, assertive, like he really wanted to get things moving. So that was something that was an encouraging sign to, to see him on the bench. And, and it didn't seem like an Eileen Cannon situation where... really didn't. Yeah. Seems so, like someone who knew what he was doing, mm-hmm. knew the system, had had his hands around the rules, and was only a little bit awed by the magnitude of the task in front of him, but not so awed as to be kind of paralyzed in a Lance Ito kind of way. Right, exactly. And so the way that he decided to handle this was he just heard these severance motions from Chesbro and Powell, the two speedy trial defendants, and he ended up deciding that he's going to uh, basically force them to be tried together, even though that is especially Ken Cheesebro, the the last thing that he wanted. Uh, I gotta say, I'm really sympathetic to Cheesebro on this. The (laughs) last thing I would want is to have a co-defendant who is Sidney Powell. You know, like, you know, it's like, you know, you, you got paired with a deranged, crazy person and she's your only co-defendant, so you got to sit next to her for four months and just hope that the jury is going to be like, well, he's not her. I mean, that was basically their argument, right? They were like, I mean, his Chesbro's attorney said, Your Honor, you and I both know that Mr. Chesbro sitting next to Miss Powell is going to be prejudicial to him. So that was basically the argument that they made is that Chesbro being tried along Sidney Powell is just going to spill over and affect him and, and prejudice his, uh, you know, ability to be fairly tried. The judge, however, you know, wasn't buying that. He, 
you know, I, I think the state made a lot of compelling arguments that because this is a RICO case, all of the evidence that could be brought in against uh, any of the co-conspirators could likely be brought in against Chesbro himself, because the way that RICO conspiracies work is that you're basically being held liable for all the acts within the enterprise that were committed as a part of the racketeering pattern. So, you know, and the judge uh, decided that that was convincing. And he said, I'm going to put Powell and Mr. Chesbro together. But what he didn't do is make a decision about all the other 17 defendants in the case. So it seemed like he was really skeptical of, of putting them to trial on October 23rd, but he he allowed the state to, you know, say we want to do more briefing. And he said, okay, that's fine. Uh, you know, next Tuesday, uh, have your briefs in. And he's, it seems like he's going to make a decision fairly soon on what to do about all these other severance motions that have been coming in. And after that hearing, we saw Mark Meadows was uh, motioning to sever, and I think David Schaefer. So we've had a few more severance motions that have been rolling in on the docket. And I, and I, just to be clear, the theory of those severance motions is not we don't want to sit next to Ken Cheesebro and and Sidney Powell. The theory is there's no way we can be ready to go to trial on October 23rd if they're going to trial on October in October count us out is that right some of them that is that is the argument that's Trump's argument is that there's no way we're going to be ready his attorney Steve Sadow who is new to the case as of a few weeks ago has a trial which actually is before Judge Eileen Cannon in federal court so he has a he has a separate trial that's happening. I believe it's in early October, maybe late September. But in any case, it is between now and the October 23rd trial. And he basically is just saying, Judge, there's no way I can be ready in time. This is a huge RICO case. And I think to that end, you know, they kind of have a point that this is a huge RICO case. And defense counsel, you know, is going to need time to go through the two terabytes of evidence that the district attorney's office says that says that they have to turn over in discovery. On the other side, you could argue, well, they've known this was coming for you know a year now, and a lot of this evidence likely isn't new to them. But I think that a judge is going to be very reluctant to say to you know 17 defense attorneys that, hey, you've got to be ready by October 23rd when you know they're all going to have various pretrial motions. The judge is going to need to have time to consider those and write opinions and orders on them. And this isn't, you know, federal court where he has like four different clerks who can, you know, work around the clock to to get these orders out in a really quick fashion. He like he's doing a lot of this with, you know, one clerk and and that things just kind of work on a slower pace and in, in state court than than you would in federal court, I think. So it's right, there's a so lot of So what do you think the here. chances are that the government files its uh briefing on Tuesday? Judge McAfee looks at it and says, you know what? I think we can pull this October thing off. I'm not severing these other cases, and you should all be ready to go to trial in October. 
I mean, I think it's pretty close to zero. He, he, like I said, he was very skeptical. The other thing, too, I would mention is it's not just that some of these folks want to be prepared for October 23rd. The, the removal aspect is something that Judge McAfee mentioned. Yeah, we're going to come to that in a minute. Hold okay. the removal thought. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll hold the removal thought, but he was very focused on how removal would impact what's happening with the trial. And so I, I think what we're going to see is a big group of 17 later on. And then it seems like the October 23rd trial with Chesbro and Powell is going to happen. So uh, that's pretty exciting. Roger, you're shaking your head. Is is that because you doubt that the October 23rd trial is going to happen or because you think it's insane? Uh, I'm just amazed uh, that even, you know, two people can go to trial that quickly. It's, uh, but... I want to make the argument that this is a smart move by Chesbro's lawyers. Chesbro is accused taking the acts that he committed himself. He's accused of basically writing a couple legal memos, admittedly on an extravagant legal theory, and in taking the most modest steps to get these implemented in Georgia. Is that a fair summary of what he's accused of? And so I guess my question is, if you have to try Chesborough by by himself, that actually, or or with Sidney Powell, whose conduct is unrelated to his. She's involved in all kinds of other stuff, Coffee County, crazy screaming White House meetings, try to appoint her a special counsel. That I mean, she's got her own problems. But it seems to me, for if you're Chesborough's lawyers and you're just looking at what he's alleged to have done, not that easy to show that he's part of a larger criminal enterprise. He's a Wisconsin lawyer who does some work for the campaign and has this batshit crazy idea and advances it. He's not the guy who implements any of it. And so it seems to me if you lop him off from the larger story and you say, what did he do? I kind of like his chances before a jury, actually. He's a guy who, he was a nerdy lawyer who had a weird idea, and some people ran with it. He didn't really have much to do with that. So my question is, are his lawyers here just being smart? Get him as alone as you can, as early as you can, and make the government answer the question, what is it that Ken Chesbrough is alleged to have done. And you got to talk about him because, you know, you can't talk about the other stuff because the jury's going to not really, I mean, I know the stuff is admissible against him on under a racketeering theory, but eventually the jury's going to convict him based on his own conduct. And I, I do have this instinct that the government here has um, has sort of imagined imagined a more comprehensive story than you're going to be able to tell if one of these defendants is sitting there alone and it's not Donald Trump. What do you think? I mean, I'm in agreement that I I think it's a good move on the defense attorney's part because 
I, I mean, I think the first reason why is just because it is a way to almost guarantee that your client gets severance from a lot of these folks. Because I think maybe what they didn't expect is that anyone else, and especially Sidney Powell, would uh, also file a speedy trial demand. I, I mean, I think that, I mean, I think you're right, but I do wonder how. Sydney Powell, even though everything that she did is a little bit more, you know, attenuated from from what he did, you know, prosecutors are going to make the argument that it was all as a, a part of the conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election. And and I I do think that it's going to be worse for him having Sydney Powell in in that trial than it would have been if, as you've described, if it's, you know, just him. So I just think we'll it's see. hard, like, it, if you focus on the question, when did Ken Chesbrough join this conspiracy? Like, you know, assuming there's some racketeering enterprise, there has to be some point at which you said, okay, I'm signed on, I'm, I'm doing this with you. And I do worry a little bit from the prosecution side that for some of these people, if you look at their conduct in isolation, there is no point where they joined. They they were just people who were working for the Trump campaign in one form or another and who, you know, continued to do so after the election was over. And I think if you're if you're Trump, the answer to that is well you didn't concede defeat, you knew you had lost, and yet you persisted in doing this. But if you're some lawyer in Wisconsin, which is what Ken Cheesebro is, and you, you know, you basically write a couple memos that say, hey, I have an idea about, you know, how we might use fake electors to, to cover our asses in the event. I'm not sure there's a, like, did you join a racketeering enterprise at some point or are you just you know kind of sitting there shooting from your hip i mean the charge the top charge is still racketeering and so they're gonna have to make they're gonna have to prove the case they're not gonna do maybe a four-month case against Cheesebro, but Although they say they're going to do the same case if there's one co-defendant or if there's 19, they're presenting the whole thing. And they, they have to. And so for instance, with the oath keepers, you know, like I said, they, they, they split the seditious conspiracy defendants into two because they were nine. And so they went with the five top defendants first and then the four next. And that was weird because you had, you were trying four defendants in the second trial without Stuart without Rhodes being there, right? And Stuart Rhodes is what the whole case is about. But they tried it, and the four in the second trial did worse. You know, uh, there were some acquittals on some of the conspiracy charges. Uh, only two got convicted of seditious conspiracy in the first group. All four were in the second, and some theorized that. It was worse not not having the contrast between you and the really bad guy, the obviously bad guy, and um, so I don't know for sure. The thing with with uh, Chesbro that concerns me, as far as the prosecution case is, 
and it, it's all a matter of facts. We, I don't know yet. I don't think any of us know yet. Is how are they going to distinguish this from what happened in Hawaii uh, in 1960? In in Hawaii, as 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 I I gather, the the contingent elector forms that were filled out did not say asterisk. This is a contingent elector form, you know, contingent upon us winning litigation. It said, you know, I am a duly elected blah, 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 which at the time wasn't true. You know, at, at the time they weren't certified. And, and the theory was you need to do that. Otherwise it won't be procedurally proper. And that's what, you know, Chesbro is going to say, and he's also going to go into this safe harbor theory and it's all very academic and uh, they've got to show this is all a pretext and you knew it. So uh, that's a factual bear, you know, maybe they have the goods, uh, but. So that's uh, an, actually a, a, a different way into the same point that I'm making, which is right. If you're showing, if you're purporting to show that he's part of a racketeering enterprise or a criminal conspiracy, rather than showing that, hey, he's a nerdy lawyer who knows about uh, Hawaii in 1960 and has this idea that you can replicate what the Democrats did. And like, you got to somehow show that he acted corruptly or made a decision to join this criminal enterprise. And I think that's just way easier to do if you've got 19 people, some of whom are crazy criminal types, uh, like literally going knocking on poll workers' doors to intimidate them, than if you've got, like, he's the only one there, him and one crazy person, uh, Sidney Powell, but their conduct had nothing to do with one another. That seems like it's going to be a weird case to try to prove. All right, let's turn to removal, because if Mark Meadows has his way, all of this is going to get nuked um, by Judge Jones of the Federal District Court in Atlanta, who is going to snap his fingers and say, I remove thee, I remove thee, I remove thee, and uh, these cases are going to vanish and show up in federal court at which point he's going to move to dismiss himself and the federal courts are going to smartly salute. And so, Anna, where are we in the removal conversation? Is there any sign of life from Judge Jones? Well, we talked last week about this additional briefing that Judge Jones ordered. He he asked the parties after Mark Meadows testified to basically write a brief on whether if some of the conduct that's alleged in the indictment is is within the scope of Mark Meadows' duties as chief of staff, would that be sufficient to to trigger removal? So the parties briefed that issue. They uh, you know, quite expectedly, uh, Fonnie Willis said, no, that's not sufficient to remove. And then Mark Meadows said, yes, it is sufficient to remove. Uh, and we haven't heard from Judge Jones since. So, it, however, I will say some of these folks who uh, are trying to remove, including David Schaefer, Jeffrey Clark, Mark Meadows, 
they've all filed these motions to try to, uh, they've framed them in various ways, but the basic gist of these motions is they're asking the state court judge to stay the proceedings in state court. Uh, Mark Meadows is, has also filed a motion to sever his case on grounds that, you know, if the case is removed, it might bring all of the defendants into federal court. So he tells the judge, you might as well sever me now, because then that way, if I if my case gets removed, it's just me. Uh, so, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of maneuvering in state court, but we haven't heard anything from Judge Jones yet. And we still have these hearings coming up on the 18th and 20th for the other people, Sean Still, J- David Schaefer, Jeffrey Clark, Kathy Latham. So we still have all of those those hearings coming up. And I don't know if Judge Jones will decide before then or not. Yeah. So a couple of things. One is one person who has not filed for removal is Donald Trump. Do we have a sense of why not? Is he just waiting to see what happens with Meadows? Well, so he has 30 days after arraignment until he has to file for removal. He did file a notice today that was quite odd because I, I, you know, jumped to the docket when I got a notification saying uh, that there was an alert. It said notice of removal. And I was like, oh, Trump's Trump's removed. So I went to the docket. But the way that they framed it was this is an initial notice to inform the court that we may uh, seek to remove Mr. Trump's case. Uh, so they're telling the court this, I think, because of the pending uh, motions to sever and the question of whether or not he should be tried I- I starting in October. But they noted that they have until 30 days after arraignment to make this decision on whether or not to remove. And I think you're right, Ben, that what they're doing is just biding their time and waiting to see if Mark Meadows is going to get removed. And they'll try to ride his coattails basically into federal court. If he does get removed, they'll make the argument that the whole action, the whole case should go with him. So uh, and then if he doesn't get removed, they'll make their own attempt. So, so it's, it seems to me like Mark Meadows's case for removal is noticeably better than everybody else's. So with, with Trump, the same acts as Meadows claims, Meadows says, hey, I was, my job was to set up calls and do stuff for the president. I did that. When the president then has those calls, you get to ask the question, was it the president's job to have that call? But Meadows seems to me to have a better argument than Trump that, hey, my arg- my job was to facilitate what the president was trying to do. And then like Jeffrey Clark was being told by his superiors, you're not allowed to do this. So he was like going rogue at the Justice Department. It seems like kind of chutzpah dick to, to, you know, defy the attorney general and try to get the attorney general fired so that you can be attorney general and do what you want to do and then claim you were acting within the scope of your responsibilities. Like, you know, since when is you the scope of your responsibility to get your boss fired so that you can do the things that he won't let you do? Is there anyone in your judgment who has a removal? I think as you know, I think Meadows's removal motion is relatively strong, and I maybe should prevail. But I'm 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 not sure. I think that of anybody else. 
is there anybody else who has a removal motion as compelling as Meadows? Not that I can think of. Roger, do you have opinions on this? Because I, I'm in agreement with you, Ben. No. Uh, I, I mean, I, I agree. Um, and I liked Meadows. He had a clever argument, which is, you know, he's in all of these awful meetings, which are hard to justify in terms of what's the federal purpose here. But he says, well, I'm chief of staff. My job is to make sure that I keep his schedule. He's got to leave that meeting by 5 p.m. So I'm there to make sure the meeting ends by 5 p.m., you know. And yeah, well, that's sort of his job. And um, and he doesn't seem to participate very. Right. I think part of the reason his his claim is 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 powerful is is also that the case against him doesn't seem to be as powerful as as with, against other people. Uh, there's a lot of just preparing phone calls. He does say some things during the big phone call on January 2nd or 3rd, whichever date it is to, to Raffensperger, but not much. But so uh, it's mixed in with the fact that the case against him isn't that strong. It doesn't, I mean, I haven't seen the case. It doesn't sound that strong just reading the indictment. Well, and it's notable that he is not listed as a unindicted co-conspirator in the comparable federal case. And yeah. this may be part of the reason why. I, I just also want to, I do think it's important that they get this right, uh, these removal things, because if we know one thing about the current Republican Party, it's that there are people in it, very powerful people, that believe very strongly in tit for tat and have no judgment and have no uh, moral compass. And it is very likely, you know, if, if they're considering impeachment now, they're considering how can we indict somebody in a small state court jurisdiction that goes our way. And we want, you know, this is an important area. The law needs to be right here. I think a lot of people's knees jerked on the on the removal question because Trump was or Meadows was asking for it and Fonnie Willis was opposing it. But I actually and Anna and Alan Rosenstein and I wrote this this morning in Lawfare, I, I actually think the case for having the federal immunity questions decided by a federal court in the first instance is decidedly not a crazy thing. And I would not be at all surprised or disappointed to see Judge Jones say, at least for federal immunity purposes, we're going to consider that in federal court. And frankly, having now spent a little bit more time, which is not to say a lot of time, but a little bit more time with the young slime life case than a healthy person should uh, do, which is another uh, uh, RICO case now in its eighth month of jury selection in Fulton County Court. I am not at all certain that old slime life case uh, uh, shouldn't <laughs> wouldn't have a better time getting to trial in uh, the Northern District <laughs> of Georgia. Can we call uh, it OLS? Yeah. Oh, the, uh, yeah, wait, the O, yeah, OSL? OSL, yeah. O OSL. <laughs> old That's slime a good life. one. 
old song. Um, yeah, Charlie Sykes came up with that this morning on the on the bulwark. I thought it was good. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has 
dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is Delete Me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. All right, we are going to go to audience questions momentarily. But before we do, Roger, while you were away on vacation, it always happens when you go away on vacation. The issue that you spotted years ago as this is going to be big and it's going to be a problem for Trump in 2024, which was old Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, came bursting back. Uh, with this article by uh, um, uh, Will Bode and, and, and Paulson uh, and then Mike Ludig and, and uh, Larry Tribe. Everybody's jumping on the bandwagon that you have been not on but eyeing uh, for a number of years now. And now there's litigation in Colorado over it. Uh, so tell us everything we need to know about the Colorado litigation and is it going to be named for you? <laughs> yeah, so yesterday, I think, the crew, which is Citizens for Responsible Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, uh, they uh, filed a case in the state court in, it's called dis the District Court of the City and County of Denver. And it's on behalf of, 
six eligible Colorado voters uh, versus Jenna Griswold, who's the Secretary of State, and Trump. Uh, Griswold is actually a Democrat, but um, apparently the implication is that they have asked her to uh, keep Trump off the ballot there, and she has declined. And uh, uh, the suit is to uh, force her, to, to enjoin her, to uh, keep Trump off the ballot as disqualified under Section uh, 3 of the uh, 14th Amendment. And uh, they've been obviously planning this for a long time. Uh, they had led, uh, crew uh, had uh, led a uh, case that successfully ousted the uh, county commissioner, Coy Griffin, in New Mexico under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I think it's the only successful case so far since... Your, your correspondent, Corey Griffin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, head of your email, the, uh, bud. Head of uh, Texans for Trump, or, or, I think. And uh, he, he was a misdemeanor uh, defendant convicted in January 6th. But that plowed some ground... And uh, they, I think they were going to rely on that. And then meantime, I don't know if this they realized, they knew this was coming down the pike, but this rather huge uh, article by Will Bode and uh, uh, Michael uh, Stokes Paulson, uh, who are these luminaries among originalists, uh, they have quite a good reputation as originalist scholars. That's why this matters uh, what they think came out with this Will Bode is also a perfectly lovely person, just a, a, a genuine mensch of a human being. And Michael Paulson might be too, but we don't really know him. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I'm not casting any aspersions on Michael Paulson. I don't yeah. know him. I've known Will for years and, and think very highly of him. Uh, I, I, I'm sure Michael Paulson's love of his fellow human out Gandhi's Gandhi. So, um, and procedurally, the case is something like the cases that were brought against early on last year against uh, Madison Cawthorn, um, trying to keep him off the ballot in North Carolina, and one against Marjorie Taylor Greene, trying to keep her off the ballot in Georgia. And the procedurally, those cases were a little stronger because those states provide very explicit procedures whereby citizens or or electors, meaning voters, eligible voters, can try to challenge the qualifications of candidates. And uh, so they they had very specific procedures to follow. It's fairly, it looks fairly strong here, uh, but it's not quite as strong. There's, There's general there is a cause of action where uh, an eligible voter can challenge what state officials are doing in the realm of of elections, and uh, there's some there's some case law suggesting that the Secretary of State does have a duty to uh, ensure that the candidates on the ballot are qualified. So that's uh, that's the basis. It's a hundred and five page complaint. It's exceedingly thorough. Uh, it uh, reads uh, something like the uh, House Select Committee report. It, it, there isn't much left out. So, um, And is the theory of it, as you understand it, that you get him struck in Colorado and then the Supreme Court will step in, the, the Supreme Court of the United States will step in 
and you litigate Section 3 there? Or is the theory that you get him struck in Colorado and then maybe he's not on the ballot in Colorado and then you do it in another state and you kind of do it until you have a conflict between state Supreme Courts that the Supreme Court will step in to resolve? Well, those are good questions. I I haven't spoken to the lawyers. I don't believe they would discuss that with me, but either of those results is is a good one as far as they're concerned. So uh, my assumption is uh, either or. Win in Colorado and then see what happens next. Yeah. All right. We are going to go to audience questions. Rachel, you get the first question today. Um, so earlier you were referring to the triangle of people involved with the top being Trump and the bottom being a lot of these soldier type people. And the middle people you referred to as the Georgia currently indicted type people. But I was wondering about the Congress members. Um, one was known to give a tour, I believe, the day before. One, I think, let uh, someone know where Nancy Pelosi's office was. I know, I think six asked for pardons preemptively. So I'm curious about what, what you guys feel about where those people should stand. So it's an interesting question. And we have... We know that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals this week issued an opinion with respect to one of the members of Congress, Scott Perry, who uh, played a somewhat direct role in that he is the person who introduced uh, Jeffrey Clark to President Trump and suggested uh, what became the uh, Clark, you know, decapitation strike at the Justice Department. Um, Scott Perry's phone was seized by the Justice Department, and the D.C. Circuit has now ruled that we don't know exactly what, because the opinion is under seal, but that there is some problem with the seizure under the speech and debate clause, and so has sent the case back uh, to the lower court for a review of that. That opinion was issued by an uncharacteristically uh, conservative panel of the D.C. Circuit. So you may see an end bank review of that, just a guess. But all of that is a long-winded way of saying that members of Congress have certain abilities to make certain arguments that are not available to the general public or members of the executive branch, uh, and particular will use the speech and debate clause uh, as a bit of a club, uh, a defensive shield that is not available to anyone else. And at least in the case of Scott Perry, it's proving to be a pretty powerful shield. No member of Congress is named as an unindicted co-conspirator in the federal case. No member uh, is named in the Georgia case. And I look at that, I'd be curious if Roger or Anna, either of you disagree, I would. I look at that as evidence that the some of the investigative threads involving members of Congress have not, did not pan out quite the way some people expected. And I also note in the, in the same regard that the January 6th committee ultimately decided not to spend a lot of energy going after you know, House members who 
didn't cooperate or whatever. And so my my working assumption is that members don't have that much exposure with the possible exception of Scott Perry. Um, but I don't, I don't feel confident about that and I'm not at all certain that I'm right. I'll leave it there. And if either of you have thoughts, uh, uh, chime in. Those are my same hunches that the speech and debate clause has thrown a wrench into the investigation. And then there are also tit for tat issues uh, that, uh, do you want to really go there? And, and, uh, now obviously Fonnie Willis did, did look into Lindsey Graham and maybe it turned out, uh, he, he was, uh, pure as driven snow or, uh, or just that he talked so much. He was like, just get out, do whatever you want. I just don't want to hear your voice anymore. Yeah. So, but uh, all I have is hunches and my hunches are sort of the same as yours. Michael, the floor is yours. I finally understood from your discussion earlier, why uh, Mr. Cheeseborough would want to go quickly with his trial to separate himself off, a limited set of charges, if I understood you, and it might go well for him in that context. And I've always understood from everything you all say why Mr. Trump would like everything to take as long as possible in order to run up into the election and the whole thing just get snarled up in some way or other. But I haven't understood what the thinking would be about everybody else, the other 17, 18, and how they would choose to go quickly or not quickly. And I, the more I listened to you, I assumed, aren't they all afraid of being caught up as a group and looking like this racketeering group, as it were? And that's a risk for all these other people, but maybe not. Yeah. So I, look, I think you're, that point is extremely perceptive and why given uh, suspects are or indictees, defendants are going to choose uh, different strategies for how to handle a case like this is to a great degree a creature of attorney strategic instinct and and the way different attorneys will strategize it. For some of the big ones, you can make pretty broad brush assumptions. So if you're Rudy Giuliani, you've got a, I think the, the technical term is a shit ton of exposure in a case like this, and you're walking the streets right now, uh, you're not locked up, push it off as long as you can, right? Uh, and that probably goes for some of the other, you know, some of the other big name people as well. Similarly, there are some people involved in this case who were accused in a way that's, by the way, not true of, you know, this case gets down and dirty with some pretty low grade local criminal activity, computer intrusions, you know, breaking into a uh, election office and stealing all the computer data, you know, knocking on election workers' doors to terrorize them. I mean, this is some basic low-grade criminality that is pretty familiar to, you know, it's, they're not the only ones of cases like this in Fulton County Court, let's put it that way. It's, you know, stuff that county court systems deal with. And again, if you're walking the streets 
and you you know you're not necessarily looking to go to trial quickly you're you may know that when you go to trial you're likely to get convicted you may also know that you're not going to go to trial you'll plead your way out of it when the when the opportunity presents so the longer you can put it off the better from a lot of you know from a lot of different point of views uh, there are also defendants who are whose defenses are uh, dependent to some degree on Trump's goodwill, and those people are going to not, you know, be kind of loath to make an argument. Don't try me with the former president; he'll sully me, right? Um, which you might otherwise expect would be a viable argument, but is not an argument that you're going to want to make if you're, you know, going hat in hand to Mar-a-Lago for, uh, for support. And I'm thinking particularly of, you know, Anna's friend, Kathy Latham and, and company, you know, they're really dependent on Trump world for goodwill. They're actually actively raising money for, for their defenses. And the last, you don't want to stick your thumb in the president's eye if you're going to his base and asking for money for your defense. So I think there's a lot of different reasons why um, people um, may want to go forward quickly. And by the way, Chesborough's and Powell's examples are different. I don't know why she wants to go forward. It may be because she's nuts. Um, Chesborough, I think, and I was pretty impressed with his lawyers yesterday. I thought they, they, they made a bad case very well, and I encourage people to. Um, what was his name? Grumpkin, Grubkin, Grubman, Scott Grubman, Grubman. Scott Grubman. Uh, he looked like he just got off of his Harley. Um, he's he he looked, you know, like he just traded a big leather jacket for for a coat and tie. He made an excellent set of arguments. I thought he was terrific. And I think they've just made the calculation that standing on his own, Kenneth Chesbrough looks like a guy, as Roger said, who studied Hawaii, not a guy who got engaged in a criminal enterprise and that they're better off with, you know, being tried by himself and, uh, and as quickly as possible. And I, I'm just not sure there are others that are in that position. Just in a in a nutshell, that the conventional wisdom is is, is if you're not incarcerated, uh, delay helps the defendant. Um, memories fade, witnesses die. Uh, you know the the burden is on the prosecution, so all of that is in your favor. All right, so a couple of people who want me to ask for them. Simon asks, speaking of the missing middle part of the pyramid in the existing prosecutions. Who should we suspect is missing from the list of those charged to date for January 6th related activity? Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, Peter Navarro, or others? Uh, So I will just start by saying there are six unindicted co-conspirators in the January 6th federal case. They would be numbers one through six on my list. I also think it is interesting that Mark Meadows has not been charged or named in that indictment, and I don't know how to read that. Roger, Anna, wh- who who are your top top few? 
Well, I I will say I think that in in respect, if you're including Fulton County, I I do in the in the January six universe of criminal cases. Um, I I think we might learn tomorrow who uh, some people who didn't get indicted, but and maybe are cooperating, which will be interesting because the special grand jury report is coming out at at 10 a.m. Uh, it's scheduled for release. That is the report that the grand jury that investigated for several months uh, and then recommended indictments. We might learn, you know, there that there are some people who were recommended and then made deals. We do know that there are at least eight of the fake electors who made such deals, but there could be more. So I'm, I'm, I think that's going to be very interesting. I'm not sure if that really answers your question about who could potentially be indicted in the future, but. I, I I just am flagging that because we didn't talk about it and it's something that's happening tomorrow morning. Roger, who are your, uh, wh- whose indictment are you braying for? Can we consult with defamation counsel before I answer that? <laughs> uh, I, we can I, use uh, initials. <laughs> I'll tell you the people that I, I'm most interested in learning what role they might or have or have not played uh, is one is is that co-conspirator six, uh, or uh, we don't know if it's six. Uh, Boris Epstein. I'm interested in him. I'm interested in Bannon. I just don't know uh, that uh, the others. I, I'm sort of are, are fading. Stone and Alex Jones and Ali Alexander. I I, I don't think that's going to uh, reach an, a criminal level, but but we'll see. All right. Anonymous attendee has two points. The first, uh, not a question, but I knew Mike Paulson when I lived in Minnesota and he's a super guy. So we now have a character reference for Mike Paulson as well as for Will Bode. Uh, all jokes aside, it's a very serious piece of uh, law scholarship. Uh, certainly the most comprehensive document on uh, along with Gerald Magliotta's uh, original piece uh, on which it builds in important ways, it's th- these are the two uh, uh, most significant documents uh, on the meaning of Section 3 in the contemporary era. Magliotta's, interestingly, uh, was written before any of this came up. He just got interested in Section 3. Sometimes, you know, you do academic historical work on the constitution and life catches up with you. Uh, Roger, were you going to say something? Um, yeah. In fact, I, I think that piece came out in December, 2020. And uh, uh, so that was good timing. And, um, but also uh, Mark Graber has done some good work uh, uh, on this as well. And of course he was the expert. He's a constitutional scholar, I think university of Maryland. And um uh, uh, he was the expert uh, in the Coy Griffin case for Crew, so we might see him again. All right. So uh, anonymous attendee also asks if Chesbro suggests a crazy idea for getting fake electors, how is that not joining the conspiracy? In what other contexts might that be a relevant idea? Uh, Roger and I may have slightly we different answers to this. We both posed this in different ways. I'll just speak for myself. People write all the time uh, loony or semi-loony legal theories 
based on past precedent and send them to campaigns for their use. And uh, so one of Chesborough's lawyers uh, mentioned- That's how on, Bill Barr became our attorney general, in fact. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, one of Chesborough's lawyers rightly point out, pointed out that Larry Lessig and and Van Jones uh, wrote a CNN article when it looked like Pennsylvania might flip to Trump, suggesting uh, basically an alternate electors slate for Biden. Um, and so, you know, this idea has been around since 1960 when it actually was done in Hawaii. And it certainly isn't a crime to merely float the idea, right? Or else we'd be right. So the the, the the question is, what more is there that Chesborough did? And there are a variety of possible answers to that question. But I think without more, if all he did is write a couple memos suggesting what, yay, the Democrats did this in Hawaii in 1960, uh, we should do it to cover our asses in these states now. I would certainly be uncomfortable with that being a crime without more. That's just speaking for myself. Roger, do you have additional thoughts on that? Uh, no, that's that's basically it. With Chesbro, it really it's all contingent on facts. I don't know about right. how they're going to prove that th this was a pretext, and he knew he knew it was part of a scheme. Anna. I mean, I, I think I disagree. I mean, like, it's not like with a conspiracy, you have to show that there's an actual agreement or just active decision to join a conspiracy, right? It's, it's much more like, like it's, it's much more about showing that you were a part of the enterprise, that there was a common plan or purpose, but it's not like people just, you know, you show conspiracy by saying, oh, Ken Ch Chesbro said in this memo that he was joining the, cons you know what I mean? It's, it's not. No, no, I, but you, but, but a common plan yeah. requires, I think requires that you show Right. Certainly they had a common plan to get Donald Trump elected. And right. the theory of the indictment is that they had also had a common plan once Donald Trump was not elected to get him installed as president again, notwithstanding the fact that he had lost. And the question I think you would to show that Chesbro had joined the conspiracy, you would have to show that he was aware that this was a way of getting around the fact that they lost rather than merely that he was like, well, we should preserve our legal options here. Yeah. And I think that's right. And I, but I think that where I, I I'm just a little bit more, uh, it's unclear to me what's not in the indictment in terms of what they're going to admit into evidence and, and show about Chesbro's a conduct. Um, you would think it would be a mistake to not put some of the more damning things in the indictment, but you know, I, I don't know. I, I maybe they they have some more cards up their sleeve that we just don't know about yet, and so I I'm just not sure that we can say right now whether or not they're going to have a more difficult time or not. Absolutely agreed. All I'm saying is I totally understand why Chesborough yeah. wants to be tried quickly and on his own. Yeah. 
Shannon asks, I've been watching the Eastman disbarment hearing. He continues to say the election was basically stolen when they show him documentation that the things he said are not true. He just says he didn't read it thoroughly or not at all. Is this a valid defense he will be able to use in Georgia? Also, is anyone at Lawfare watching the Eastman disbarment hearing? They are presenting lots of evidence that I think may be used in D.C. and Georgia and would love to hear your take. Uh, so I'm going to leave the uh, whether it's a valid defense to Anna. I will just say, yes, Quinta Jurassic has been following all the disbarment proceedings closely and um, has a lot of thoughts about the Eastman hearings. Uh, she is obviously not here today, but uh, has been on others talking about them and will be in the future. So um, bring your Eastman questions to Quinta. Anna, what do you think? Uh, does the, I didn't read the stuff that didn't support my view and I believed the stuff uncritically that did and therefore I acted in good faith. Does that get Eastman off the hook in Georgia? I mean, I don't think so, but it might be part of some kind of defense. Uh, and this is just, you know, I'd have to look at into the case law and that kind of thing. So this is just me, you know, speaking off the cuff, but it might be go to some kind of mistake of fact defense. So Eastman saying, I truly did believe that the election had been stolen and I, you know, was doing all of this, uh, believe it in, in the belief that, uh, you know, all of these things were lawful because I believe there had been fraud and, and all of that kind of thing. I, does that make sense? Uh, I, it sounds like it probably wouldn't work, but um, uh, Ben, Roger, do you guys have other thoughts how, how this could play into his defense? Well, I mean, I, I think it's more of a, I, I, a fact question for the jury. I mean, Bingo. and, and, even if there is, I know there is some sort of uh, defense in, in Georgia that you're referring to, but still the jury is entitled to say, oh, I get it. You're a liar. You know, mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. is, uh, this is very convenient. And that's what jurors often do when people are saying very, very unlikely things and saying that, you know, black is white and, and I really believed it. And um, I, I think it's a jury question. I agree with that completely. John, uh, the floor is yours. Thanks, Ben. So maybe I've missed it, but why is the Young Slime Life jury selection taking so long? Like what's actually going on and does that have implications for the length of Trump's jury selection? I can't imagine it's hard to find jurors who have never heard of this guy because I certainly hadn't. Yeah, you don't live in Fulton County. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of people in Fulton County have heard of Young Thug and and Young Slime Life, which is a record label, but then is also an alleged uh, criminal gang called uh, Young Stoner Life. Or maybe I'm getting that mixed up, where the record label is Young Stoner Life and the. I think I'm going to change my name to Middle Aged Lawfare Life. <laughs> Anyway, um, so so to answer your question, John, which is a really good question that a lot of people have been asking, uh, it's taking so long because the case has, it started out with 20-something defendants. It's now been, people have been severed out, and now it's down to, I think it's 13 or maybe 12 now. But uh, it's, a, it's estimated to be the longest trial in Georgia history. Uh, it'll take over six months with potentially 300 witnesses to be called. Uh, and, and before that reason, 
season, they're having a lot of trouble finding jurors who are willing to be on the jury. So uh, virtually every juror juror has uh, claimed hardship and the judge has to hear those hardships. Uh, so they can just not find 12 people who, uh, because of various life circumstances, you know, work or, or, um, uh, family or, or, you know, whatever, they just can't find 12 people who can actually be on a jury for potentially a year. Uh, that's a long time to be only paid $25 a day. So, it's it's very hard for them to find those people who can do it. A lot of people don't like the high profile nature of the case. Uh, so that's taken up a lot of time. You also have to consider the fact that in, in Georgia courts, and I think this is different in federal court, but correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the judge typically conducts voir dire. Is that right in federal court? Like a- asking jury questions, whereas in Georgia defense counsel can, you know, ask questions of the jurors and 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 do their own voir dire questions. So when you have that many defendants and everybody is asking, you know, wants their chance at asking questions and has different interests, and so it just takes a long time to get through this process. So uh, hopefully that answers your question as in terms of what's going on. But we're in month eight of of jury selection in the YSL case and they're nowhere near finding a jury yet. So we'll see. All right. So the last question is from Jacob and this uh, wraps us up nicely. Do we know what court arguments are coming up in the various cases? So short answer, um, Anna, what do we have coming up in Fulton County? So as I said, we've got these removal hearings that are happening September 18th and September 20th. That's on the fake elector removal uh, actions, Kathy Latham, David Schaefer, and Sean Still. Uh, And then we've also got Jeffrey Clark. And then we have all these severance motions that are about the group as a whole. So we might have another hearing or argument on that. And and the district attorney's office will be uh, submitting further briefing on Tuesday about how removal plays into the severance uh, aspect of it all. And then we also have David Schaefer asked for a hearing today because he claims that he had improper contact from special prosecutor Nathan Wade that is the prosecutor who is in private practice, but was brought into the district attorney's office to conduct this investigation. I saw the exhibit that uh, David Schaefer attached to his filing. It looks like one of those automated mass mailing that uh, that defense attorneys send out to anyone who was recently indicted. And David Schaefer happened to get one from Nathan Wade's law partner. So now he's claiming that, that this is, you know, an improper communication and he's asked for a hearing on it. Uh, so those are those are the things that are coming up in the Fulton County case. And what do we have coming up in Tanya Chutkin's uh, courtroom? Do we know? I, I, I don't. In the short term, um, there's been a flurry of uh, sealed filings, actually in both the uh, D.C. case and the Mar-a-Lago case. But in the D.C. case, I, I think it's pretty clear from a recent filing that at least some of them relate to Trump's quote, daily extrajudicial statements that threaten to prejudice the jury pool in this case. 
the government wanted to file something quickly under seal and uh, Judge Chutkin granted that. And then Trump's people moved to vacate that and said, you didn't give us 14 days to respond to their motion to file under seal, uh, which is what sort of the default setting for the local criminal rules. And she actually decided, okay, uh, she vacated uh, and and then she gave them a much shorter period of time in which to oppose. But uh, that might be sort of an interesting thing going on. And then we also saw today that um, I'm blanking on uh, Casey Gannon at CNN, who's uh, the woman who most follows the uh, uh, grand juries at uh, in D.C., uh, she noticed that uh, the D.C. January 6th grand jury was back in session after several weeks uh, uh, of uh, dormancy. So uh, I don't know if that has something to do with the unsealed, the, the sealed filings, but that's sort of interesting as well. Yeah, also watch oh. those un- unindicted co-conspirators. <laughs> yeah. And then over in the Mar-a-Lago, if, uh, if uh, um there's litigation going on about conflicts, um, whether Woodward, Stanley Woodward, who represents a lot of witnesses, uh, has conflicts. He had represented, he represents Nauta. Uh, he also, by the way, represents Navarro, who was convicted today. But he represented uh, for a while Usul uh, Taveras, who was uh, Trump employee number four, and uh, who is now cooperating. And and then there's a John Irving, I think, uh, who represents D. Oliveira. He represented uh, three other witnesses who are, are going to be government witnesses. And the government was bent out of shape about that. They've gotten new lawyers since they filed their motion. Anyway, there's a lot of interesting litigation there. And simmering you know, beneath it all is the is the question, big question about, you know, Save America PAC is paying for all these people's defense and um, uh, defense costs a lot. And so it's very hard to abandon Trump if you would have to pay for your own lawyers. And um, and in fact, NADA, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but NADA uh, not as salary is paid by Save America PAC, which is a really uh, weird thing. So uh, I, I think the government is trying to get at some of these issues, and uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see how Judge Cannon responds and how the government responds to how Judge Cannon responds. We are going to leave it there. Anna Bauer, Roger Parloff, you are both great Americans. There is going to be a great deal more action over the next few weeks, and we will be here every Thursday at 4 o'clock Eastern time. We will be back next week. Thank you all. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution to join future episodes live of Trump's Trials and Tribulations. Become a material supporter of Lawfare at lawfaremedia.org support. 
Our audio engineers this episode were Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo and Anna Hickey of Lawfare. Folks, share this on whatever social media service you use. Rate us on whatever podcast catcher you grabbed us from. And also click that like button on YouTube on the episode of this show if you watched it on YouTube they all help, all those likes. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.